link, learn, and connect with some of the best, most articulate, and practical professionals in the field of speech-language pathology. Do you work with school-aged children? You're in the right place to gather new information and great ideas for you and your therapy kids. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the EZR program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. If you've ever read or watched anything I've ever done in the speech therapy world, you probably know that I'm a proponent of oral-oriented, more physiological speech methods. I've invited our guest today, however, an expert in my eyes, to broaden and expand my therapy horizons. And if you really know me as a therapist, I'm for pretty much anything that works. The child's needs are always the focus. So grab your note-taking device and hold on. This is a good one. Here we go. Well, let us get started here. And before we actually begin, I would like to mention disclosures. And regarding financial disclosures, Dr. Historical does receive an honorarium for this podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. And I also receive an honorarium for the SpeechLink. And I'm also a presenter for SpeechLink or for uh, SpeechTherapyPD.com and receive royalty payments as well. And I own Speech Dynamics. Regarding non-financial disclosures, Dr. Storkel and I have no non-financial disclosures to report. And with that said, welcome everybody to our live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com. And today is a very special edition of Research Studies and Therapy Strategies, and we are focusing on key methods to enhance speech sound treatment success. And of course, you are more than welcome to participate and just type your question or comment into the chat and I'll read it and Dr. Storkel will respond. I am Shar Beauchart, your speech-language pathologist host. And to begin, let's learn about Dr. Storkel. Personally, I've learned that she's a very nice person, easy to work with, and very dedicated to our field. In addition, Holly L. Storkel, PhD, CCCSLP, has been a professor and researcher in the Speech-Language Hearing Sciences and Disorders Department at the University of Kansas in Lawrence for over 20 years. In addition, she serves as the Associate Dean for Academic Innovation and Student Success in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at KU, as well as the Editor-in-Chief for the ASHA Journal, Language, Speech, and Hearing Services, in schools. She received her BA in Speech and Hearing Sciences at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and her MS in Speech Language Pathology and Doctorate in Speech and Hearing Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. She also worked in a private practice that specialized in children's language disorders. In her early research, I love this, Dr. Storkel focused on determining why some children learn sounds and words of their native language easily, while others struggle. Boy, that's, that's a puzzle to be unraveled. Her current research, however, seeks to evaluate and develop treatment approaches, I like that, to accelerate sound and word learning in children with speech sound disorder and or developmental language disorder. And Dr. Storkel endeavors to bring best practice approaches to real world clinical and community settings. Hallelujah. And most of all, she desires to help children learn words and sounds to better succeed in school and in life. And I should also mention that she prefers to be called Holly and I'm so happy that you're here. Welcome to the speech link, Holly. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here to talk with you and your audience about children with speech sound disorders. Yes, terrific. We've got an entire hour here. Um, and to begin, just to kind of dis to set the stage, give us a framework. I know that you have written a lot about speech sound disorders, um, which is one or two discoveries that you see as important in treatment. 
So I think uh, one of the things that I see, not from uh, not just from my own research, but from reading the literature as well, is that mm -hmm. what sound or sounds you select for treatment really matters. Most kids have lots of sounds that they don't say, and so there's many options uh, for what to select for treatment. And, and that can be, you know, really challenging as a therapist to yes. think through all of the possibilities and um, decide what might be the best option. And what the research tells us is that some options will lead to greater change than other options. So mm -hmm. it's really critical to be able to think through all of those options, apply the literature, but also apply. Um, your own clinical expertise and the needs of the of the client. So it's really possible here when we think about speech sound disorders to leverage the whole evidence-based practice triangle when we're thinking about sound selection. Mm -hmm. Then, of mm -hmm. course, you're going to have to teach whatever sound you select, and you need to teach the sound effectively. And there is research guidance here to get you started. Um, but I would say it, it feels different to me once you start that treatment plan with a child, because kind of before you start, the child is sort of a black box. You know, you have a little bit of information from your assessment, mm -hmm. but not a ton yet because you've probably only seen the child a couple of times and you've only been able to do so much. And so you can rely on what you have. And again, you can then pull in your own clinical expertise, your own internal evidence, as well as the research evidence. But then when we start looking uh, working with kids, we start kind of unpacking or unlocking that black box because we mm -hmm. can see how they react to what we do. And so that piece where you're trying to teach the sounds becomes, you know, really dynamic in terms of thinking of each child as their own little puzzle because you you try something and then you kind of see how they react and then you kind of go, hmm, <laughs> now what? <laughs> or you're like, great, this is really working. So I think that's um, the really exciting, both of those things are the really exciting aspects of treatment of speech sound disorders. I know some clinicians find treatment of speech sound disorders to be boring, but I think it's actually really exciting um, because you have that kind of, you know, puzzle in the beginning where you're using kind of more generic evidence, I guess, you know, what you've culled from your own experience, what you've culled from the research literature. But then when you start working with the child, like I said, it becomes really dynamic and you're really getting to learn the things that work for that specific child and starting to tailor all that knowledge that you bring to being a really effective therapist for that particular child. Yes, yes. I mean, you've got, you've got all the information perhaps that you learned at, at the university, perhaps in other supplements that you've read along the way. You've got all of your uh, experience that you've gleaned from other children. And then you have that black box, <laughs> that unknown dynamic sitting there in front of you. And, you know, if you're in the schools, you may have three or four or five little unknowns sitting there in front of you that you have to sort through and personalize the therapy for them. So yeah, there's a lot to think about. I, I, and I have, you know, and you know, if you go on Facebook, I have read that, you know, some people are just bored out of their mind, you know, doing speech sound therapy. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure that they're, you know, maybe because they're not making progress. You know, I think a lot of times I used to get bored when I just felt that I wasn't being effective. And, uh, and, but it takes a lot of thinking and pulling the pieces together to really become effective. And if I'm bored, then chances are the kids are going to be bored. <laughs> so it's kind of a little, you know, kind of a cyclic thing there that you can, or a spiral, <laughs> maybe a downward spiral. But yes, I agree with you. I think speech sounds and the whole production issue and the auditory piece and putting it all together. I mean, there's there has been such research over the years that has happened. And, you know, and I have a, you know, I've read, not probably as much as you have, but I've read a lot. And it's just so interesting in pulling all the pieces together. And, you know, Holly, I did mention to you in our little pre-session, just you and I, that I'm pretty physiologically based. Um, and yet, you know, I, I am the kind of person that I want to do whatever works, you know, with the child, you know, if, if we can, you know, I don't care what it is. <laughs> I'll stand on my head, <laughs> you know, if it works. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited to learn more about this 
auditory piece and the complexity piece and and how you see it coming together and what you actually do in therapy. So great. All right. So how about if we jump into that complexity piece and what makes speech sounds complex or where are you coming from with that piece? Sure. I'd love to talk about that. So when we think about complexity, there's really um, four dimensions that we can think of. Two dimensions are specific to the sounds themselves. So it doesn't matter the child in front of us. It's just a property of sounds. And then two dimensions are more specific to a child. So that would be something you'd have to evaluate and think about child by child. In terms of the the two that are sound specific, um, those are developmental norms. And so everyone's probably familiar with this, right? We, we oh, know yeah. certain ages of acquisitions for different sounds, and we know that some sounds are learned early and others are learned late. Um, so the way that would apply to complexity is that we would think of the early acquired sounds as being simpler or less complex, more basic. And then the late acquired sounds like the fricatives, the affricates, the L and the R, those would be the ones that we think of as being... Yeah, being yeah. more complex yeah. and more difficult. I, and, and and just to sort of slip in here, I just so happened to have, we didn't plan this, but I have your <laughs> article here, your 2019 article, your very good article. It's a perspectives, Asha, using developmental norms for speech sounds as a means to determining treatment eligibility in schools. Yeah. So, yes. Yes, you've you have studied this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's also another tutorial that's specifically on the complexity approach. That one was in um, LSHSS. So if anyone's particularly interested or wants to read up more on the, the different um, topics that I'm talking about right now, um, there's a full a full article that you could read about it if you want to invest that much time. But I'll, I'll give you the brief overview here. Okay. <laughs> the the next piece about um, sound-specific complexity is what we think of as linguistic complexity. And so this comes from linguistic theory. And so linguists um, have studied all of the languages of the world, and we think of child language as being a language in its own right. And they um, yeah. have looked at the sounds that tend to occur in many languages and the sounds that tend to occur in fewer languages. And what they draw from that then is that the sounds that occur across a lot of different languages are the more simple or more basic kinds of sounds. And the sounds that occur across fewer languages are, again, kind of more advanced or more linguistically complex. And it turns out that this tends to cohere with developmental norms. And so that kind of makes sense. If something is simple, the kids are probably learning it earlier, whereas if it's more complex, they're probably learning it later. So again, things that would be considered complex would be, for example, the three element clusters like SKW, SPL, SPR. That is not a very common thing (laughs) that you see in other languages of the world, putting three consonants together. And likewise, the two element clusters like FL, SL, FR, um, those again are not super common. If you speak another language, you might have come across that and realized, oh, this language doesn't even have any kind of clusters or they have like very, very restricted set of clusters. Mm -hmm. And then we move into, again, things like affricates and fricatives and stops and so on kind of down the line. And again, if you think about what you know about um, develop developmental norms, it tends to cohere with this linguistic complexity as well. Interesting. So the idea within the sound complexity about why you would want to teach complex sounds rather than the simpler, more basic sounds is that more complex sounds show you the upper limit of the phonology. So it gives you kind of that full that full range of kind of you're here at this level and we really need you to move up. You know, we need you to move up and have clusters um, and not just stay at the singleton level, for example. Also, learning theory agrees with that as well. Um, So there's different studies looking at learning all kinds of stuff. Uh, For example, math. And what it shows is that if you teach the more complex skill, kids can actually learn it and they'll fill in the other simpler skills without you really directly teaching them. 
So for example, you can teach division and children will learn multiplication, subtraction, and addition, as well as division in the same amount of time it would take you to teach division if the kid already knew those other basic skills first. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So the idea from linguistics and learning theory is, you know, go for broke, (laughs) go for the most (laughs) complex sound, show the kid where it's at. Okay. And, and that's, if we could sort of dig in just a little bit, and that is assuming that the um, craniofacial oral respiratory system is intact. Yes. Yeah, so this, all of the work in this area has really been... All of that. Yeah. yeah. All of the work in this area has really been on kids who um, have functional speech sound disorders. So, so no type of structural, um, okay. neurologic, um, you know, everything is intact and it seems to be a phonological disorder. Gotcha. Now, that doesn't mean that the child doesn't have some element of motor challenges in the sense that once you've set a sound wrong for, you know, five years, you've ingrained that motor pattern and you're still going to need to learn the motor pattern to make the sound in the adult way. Um, but the the root is thought to be, you know, the, the initial root is thought to be more uh, phonological in nature for the cause of their disorder. Okay. All right. That's a, that's a good clarification. Thank you. Yeah. Uh-huh. So then if we move on to now the child-specific factors, so the two things we think of here are accuracy and stimulability. So what we're really looking at now is saying, you know, not not the general how phonology works in English or Spanish or whatever we're looking at, but how is this specific child learning phonology? And so um, accuracy is just what it means, how accurately they produce the sound. And so we can differentiate sounds that are low accuracy. So, you know, 0% correct. Child never says R, never says TH, whatever it is. And then there might be some sounds that the child has some emerging accuracy for. So maybe you're hearing, you know, one or two correct F productions. Or um, even a little bit further along, maybe the child is producing the sound in some word positions, but not others. Um, So they have kind of a mid-accuracy. Maybe they produce the sound in word final position, uh, but not in word initial. And then, of course, we have sounds that are totally accurate and are, are mastered. And so typically, obviously, in, in speech therapy, we're not going to work on the mastered sounds, but we could choose from those sounds that are kind of mid-accuracy or 0% accuracy. And so here in the complexity approach, it would suggest that you should pick those sounds that are 0% accuracy. And then in terms of stimulability, you know, if a sound is inaccurate, they, a child still might be able to produce the sound with some support. Um, so if we, you know, give the child a model or give them a little bit of coaching, we can see if they can produce the sound accurately. And if they can, we would call that sound stimulable. And if they can't, we would call that sound non-stimulable. And so again, from the complexity perspective, we would say treat the sound that is non-stimulable. So the idea here is that. And really the evidence shows that if a child has some accuracy for a sound or is stimulable for a sound, they might be able to learn that sound on their own without help. And so they don't really need the coaching that an SLP can provide to keep going with that sound and take it to mastery. If I could ask, is is that looking at the younger child, like younger than six and seven, they're still in that developmental zone? Generally, yes. It moves up a little bit to kind of the seven, eight range, but but generally, yes, the kids okay. that are in that younger range. That are still in process. Yes. Okay. All right. right. So not those kids that are quite old that have those ingrained errors. Um, right. You know, the child that um, is 10 and still is having difficulty with R. That's not the kind of child we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about kind of the younger children, the children that have multiple speech sound errors. Um, those are generally the ones we're thinking of. Okay. Good. Good. So then the flip side is then you want to teach the sounds that the child has 0% accuracy for and is not stimulable for because those are the sounds that the child really kind of hasn't started to learn on their own. So they they really need the help of a therapist to kind of spark that, spark that start. So okay. we, 
We combine all of those factors then to basically try to find the sound that is going to be an advanced sound in terms of phonology. Um, so the phonology of whatever the target language is, we want to pick from the, the top level, if you will, of the advanced sounds and pick sounds that the child isn't already kind of starting to learn on their own. Um, and usually once you kind of pull those factors together, you'll still have several sounds to choose from. Um, there won't be just one. You'll, you'll still you know, have at least a handful of sounds that meet that, that definition. And so then you can apply um, additional criteria to pick the final sound or sounds that you want to work on. So this is where you could start to pull in your own clinical expertise and pull in the needs of the, the child or the goals of the family, that type of thing to, to really narrow it down to your final one or two sounds to focus on in treatment. Okay. Okay. Now, did I miss the three and four, the, those are more oriented to the child, right? Um, the, uh, the norms, looking at the norms, and then also the linguistic complexity. And then was, was there a three and four? Yeah, the accuracy and the stimulability. Oh, okay. Those are the, okay. Those are the, the ones. Okay, great. Okay. The norms, the linguistic complexity, accuracy of, of the child's productions, and then if the child is stimulable. Stimulable, how far do you take this? Because, you know, let's just say that, well, what would be a good example? Uh, like an S, okay? You know, sometimes kids do, you know, they put their teeth together and you hear the little skippy, skippy sound with their tongue smashed behind their teeth, which is a whole lot better than no S or sh or it's better. Okay. It's better. So, you know, I'm, or if the child is, 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 you know, saying an S that, that is just, you know, so inconsistent. And so I'm even going to say painful for the child to produce, you know, what, what is stimulable? Is it something that looks like the child, you know, it's fairly effortful for the child to produce, it looks more like, you know, the front teeth. Now, the front teeth do overlap, but the back teeth are not jammed together. And you have the sides of the tongue, you know, bracing on the side teeth and, and a few other things. But how close to that physiological, that desirable physiological piece? Because you've got several components in there, but how close do you get? Do you just say, well, it's better than it was, or it's something? You know, how how do you gauge that as far as stimulability? Because you can go on, oh, that sounds pretty good. But then, you know, that's, that's not the way that, I, that's not the finished result. That's not what I want the child to do in his connected speech eventually. So how do you sort of decipher all that with this approach? That's a great question. And actually, in the research literature, it's been um, pretty simplistic, the whole entire thing. <laughs> so one, one piece of simplicity is that um, typically the stimulability test that's been used in the research literature is one that was um, developed by Adele Michio. And uh, what she did was really just use imitation as kind of the main prompt that the child is, is given. Mm -hmm. So she used, um, it's 10, uh, uh, well, actually, they're not all syllables. You, you elicit the sound in isolation, and then you do 10 syllables, um, or nine, sorry, isolation plus nine. There we go. I finally got it to add to 10. <laughs> Math is not my strong suit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you elicit the sound in isolation, and then you're going to elicit it in uh, syllables. You use three different vowels to, again, kind of move the tongue around with your vowel to maybe help move move the tongue in the right place for the consonant. And you do test the consonant in different word positions, so initial, um, medial, and word final. So again, so that's a little bit of the facilitation that's provided, and then you provide that over-articulated model, and you see if the child can imitate it. So even the part where you're kind of coaching is very, very limited coaching that is provided, not really any coaching at all. It's just a little bit of facilitation from the word position, the vowels, and then having that over-articulated model. And then the child imitates, and in many cases, it's not 
really the things you were asking about are not really well described in the research literature about how good the sound has to be. You know, basically, whoever is the examiner has to perceive it as the target sound. So I would assume that in most cases, if there's some distortions, but it's, you know, S-like, that people are probably accepting that um, as a as an accurate production. Okay. So, and, and then to be classified as stimulable, the child just has to get three or more correct imitations out of the 10 that you're, you're giving them. So it's a, it's a kind of mm. low bar on yeah, what you're is. looking for. And it's um, a low bar too, in terms of the support that's being provided. Um, you know, I think now when we're thinking about stimulability, we are thinking about it in a much more dynamic way, about doing more uh, coaching and articulatory instructions and things like that to really give the child good support. Um, a lot of times if you're doing that as a therapist, you're, you're wanting to get that sense of what is treatment of this sound going to be like. Um, so you're, you know, simulating treatment much more than what I've just described. And like, like you were talking about, you probably want to be taking some detailed notes too on the child's production so that you know whether you got a really good S or a distorted S and how was it distorted because some distortions are maybe less distracting than others and might be easier to coach away from that distortion too. So I think realistically, (laughs) you would not want to do exactly what the research literature is doing because it's not giving you enough information. It would be nicer to have this much richer data set where you've done a bit more, you know, used your clinical expertise, your clinical knowledge of how to elicit S, you know, tried your best tricks to kind of see what might work, and then also taken some more detailed um, notes about, you know, how good that production really was, even if it's just something like, you know, accurate versus distorted versus like, not at all, (laughs) not even close. (laughs) Well, a couple of things that I think I would look for, because I, I mean, all my life, I have just looked at the mouth. I mean, I listen to But I'm, you know, I just, it's like, I'm just focused. And I'm looking at, you know, like the tongue's plane of movement. Am I still seeing horizontal movement? Most of our speech sounds are vertical. You know, am I seeing, you know, where is the the basic position of the tongue? Is it in a central location? Do I see it up, you know, elevated? Do I see, you know, the, the chin moving at all in order to rotate forward to get that anterior dental approximation for the front teeth so that you get that friction, you know, as the air goes through the teeth? You know, so I, I would be looking for those little signals and those little components in addition to the sound of the sound. And I just, I think that's like, you know, the, the ideal that really we really look at the auditory component, the physiological component, but we have to know what to look for. And, uh, you know, breaking it down into the stabilization, mobilization components is kind of my lowest common denominator. And then looking at lingual plane of movement and, and you know, all of that kind of thing. I, I would think that kind of slipping some of those things in would really give you a little more insight as to what the child is stimulable you know, for at that moment that you can, you know, continue to perpetuate in your therapy. I would agree with that too. And I think because, so this is a way, uh, sometimes people start getting worried about using the complexity approach because, you know, I'm, I'm saying teach the hard thing, but I'm not saying teach the impossible thing. Ah, yes. <laughs> and, Ooh, there's a so, difference. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. want to kind of find that just right spot where you are pushing them forward, but not, you know, pushing them to frustration. And so what you're talking about could be really helpful because what you might see is that, you know, a a kid is like all over the place and and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's going to be like really challenging because there's about six things that need to change um, versus a child who, you know, has some some closer elements or can just respond to your coaching better. So even even that would be useful too. like 
Yeah. So yeah. you get, even though we're saying, you know, pick the thing that's non-stimulable, pick the thing that's low accuracy, pick an advanced sound, you still want to kind of look for that glimmer of, okay, I've got a foundation that I can work from. I'm not starting at like negative 12, you know, I'm starting, <laughs> yeah. you know, more like at one or two. And so I, I, and I can see that when I say these couple of things, this child is moving in the right direction. And that's telling you, okay, this is going to work. This, this is going to be very coachable. And even though this is an advanced sound and a sound that the child isn't saying, they do have some sort of a foundation that I can build from. And I know how to say to them, I, I know how to say to them in a way that they understand, right? Because you can try all sorts of things. And, you know, for some kids, one kind of instruction works. And for another kid, that doesn't work at all. So it's that kind of that dynamic play between you and the child to figure out, okay, can we speak the same language? Can I say the right things and translate my knowledge into instructions that you can interpret and now move forward. Yes. So what you're talking Good. about, getting all that detailed information would really help you sort of see, all right, we've got the little sub pieces that we need to move this forward, even though the child isn't right at a good S right at this moment. But I can I can see that glimmer. I can see the steps to get there versus yes. I have no idea how I would ever get this kid <laughs> to yeah. an adult S. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like, oh, maybe yeah. we'll put that one aside for a yeah. little we bit. We won't and, do that know, one. Yeah. <laughs> work on something. Else. Let's do that L. That L looked a little better. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really a big front tongue vertical movement as opposed to, you know, lower the front part of the tongue and just hold it there, please. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. While air is moving through. And that's, you know, that's the big thing with fricatives. You know, I mean, you look at plosives, you can you can cheat on plosives. You know, you can cheat. But in reality, your adult T is the tongue is up within the dental arch and you're holding onto the side teeth, you're bracing for dear life. You know, the mid tongue contracts, the front part of the tongue lowers and sustains itself in space, or it doesn't sustain, that's for S. But the front tongue lowers in a little itty bitty manner rather than hold jaw, hold tongue. And so, you know, I mean, and so adult speech is, is pretty refined and it really does require a lot of that stabilization piece. And so if you see a lot of excessive jaw movement, now this is just me, you know, and adding to that acoustic piece, that if you see a lot of jaw movement or use, if you can see the surface of the tongue, then, you know, chances are that tongue is down rather than up where it needs to be interacting. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the whole idea of combining and really focusing on all of these pieces, you know, so that the child can glean, you know, from one or all of these pieces. Because I mean, let's just let's just face it. You know, when you have a four year old, or maybe even a five year old, the first round of development didn't work. You know, and so I just feel like we need to pull out all the stops. <laughs> you know, let's 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 get as as much help as much what I call assists as possible for this child. So yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. Yeah. And I think that makes sense too. I mean, you, you don't want to, you know, so let's go back to that S example. You don't want to teach the child a bad production and you don't want to reinforce that bad production. So, yeah. you know, if you've chosen to work on S, you don't want to be targeting a dental S or a lateralized S or whatever. You really want a good S. Right. And so when you're, when you're using all of that support, it makes sense to, and again, this goes back to this whole, is it phonology? Is it articulation? You know, is it more the cognitive perceptual or is it the motor? Well, it's, it's really all of all it. Of it. It's all of <laughs> it. Hello, right. you know, please, you know, and I, and I have read, what was it? Faye? Was it Mark Faye? I mean, back in the like 1980s, you know, when we went from a more phonetic to, to a phonological, he wrote this, I'm going to call it a landmark article. And he said, Hey, folks, we need to look at both. And he really liked the phonological piece, which, yes, hello, yes, it's important. But you can't just dump, <laughs> you know, you know what's going on. And because this is the act. I mean, you have to look at the act somewhere along the line. I mean, we just can't hope and pray that the kid's going to match it, you know, match the acoustic piece and magically come up with 
oh, I need to elevate my tongue. I mean, somewhere along the line, we need to focus on really that stabilization, mobilization um, piece, I think. And, and But you know, I can't say that I've ever done therapy without focusing on the auditory piece. Never. I've never, I mean, you know, you, you just, you have to combine it all. So, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that. And honestly, I think that a lot of therapists do that. I think that they combine it and bless them <laughs> because I, I, it's just so very important. Okay. Wow. What do you want to move into now? Now, do you want to still talk about analysis or do you want to move in some therapy or you want to get specific with some of this? Well, actually, I, I see there's a question in the chat, and I wanted to ask you oh, this, I'm too. Sorry. I was, <laughs> it's really I was more calling, for you than for me. I was calling myself, what are some ways to stabilize the jaw? I would love to know more about more strategies for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Um, yeah, that is kind of out of the realm as to where we're at. You know, and, and Jessica, honestly, email me. <laughs> email me char at speechdynamics.com and and you know we can either email and I can talk with you about it but I do have a philosophy on that and um and, and I'm, I'm going to give you my my foundational piece because and I don't know what what age child or what's going on with your child and it kind of there's a difference of of um, what you look at but here's my fundamental piece okay and then we're going to get back on track the jaw, Let's see. Okay, I will. Could you put your email in the chat? Yes, I will. Um, the jaw is, from my perspective and from what I have read, is a secondary articulator. And it moves at the beck and call of the tongue and the lips. Okay, so the jaw moves in a vertical, a vertical manner. And it sort of moves and it stops and it moves and it stops and it opens and it moves. And so it is offering support rather than I'm going to say stabilization, but it supports the needs, whether the jaw needs to be open for the tongue to lower and maybe do a nice TH or get those low front, low back vowels or whatever it needs to do, or elevate to get the lips together for the P's and B's and M's. So, you know, it adjusts, he's at the beck and call, you know, of the, so I see if, if the tongue is capable, if the lips are capable, the jaw is going to follow. And I mean, if we look at, at, development and, and what's happening with vocal play and babbling, the jaws, the jaws, the star. And then as time goes on, the jaw takes a back seat, a more supportive role. And then you, you generate the capability of all those other important, other important articulators. So I look at it as a developmental thing, but yes, I'll type it in right now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Got off on the jaw. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to get into therapy here, Holly? Where Where do you want to go with this? Yeah, actually, let me let me tell you one thing while you put your email in the chat. Okay. I wanted to mention that um, I often do these trainings on the complexity approach, you know, and we spend, you know, like several hours talking about these these different factors to consider. And we'll look at some cases and pick some sounds and things yeah. like this. And at the end of it, clinicians always say to me is, well, can't we just teach clusters? Aren't clusters always a good thing to teach within this approach? And that's true. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to um, share with your listeners as sort of a simplified version of the complexity approach is to consider um, the fricative plus liquid clusters. Um, so FL, SL, FR, the THR, like in thread, and SHR, oh, like in shriek, ooh. and then the voiced stop plus liquid cluster. So BL, GL, BR, DR, GR. Um, these are often very good targets within the complexity approach because they're late acquired. They're one of the most complex sounds um, in English. Most kids are zero accuracy for them, and a lot of times there's some stimulability issues. Um, so they tend to kind of work universally for, for most kids, kind of in that, you know, four to six, seven, eight range. You you can do it with three-year-olds. I, I know folks who have taught three-year-olds clusters, but that usually makes clinicians kind of go, oh, <laughs> you people are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> 
but maybe not an R. So, okay. Uh, so that's a, a kind of a shortcut in the complexity okay. approach to, Good to, to know. maybe maybe consider those clusters and how those would be appropriate um, for a child that you might be working with. Okay. All right. Good. You know what? Could I go back just for a second? You mentioned Adele and then it begins with an M. Is that on the market? Is that something that we can it's, purchase? It's just it... an article. So oh, Michio. Uh, M-I-C-C-I-O. I don't know if I say her name correctly, but yeah, um, about right. <laughs> um, and um, let's see, in, in the complexity article, for sure, the one that's in language, speech and hearing services in the schools, um, we mention that article and the full references in that article. I don't know the reference off the top of my head. But okay. also in that article, actually, in the supplemental materials, we provide um, a probe um, to elicit um, the mid eight and the late eight sounds and clusters. And we also include Michio stimulability probe within that. So that's available. The article's open access. The materials are also open access. So folks could just go there and you'll get the full probe as well as some instructions about how to administer it and score it and everything else. Okay. All right. Did you say it's in your Using Developmental Norms article? No, it's in the, it's in the other one. It's, uh, it has complexity approach in the title. I can't think okay. of the full name. Okay. Okay. All right. I probably have that here. Let me see. Is it on your website, on the, the school website? Do you know? Um, that's a good question. I can't remember what articles I have. Well, actually, all of my articles are in the long version repository um, on the okay. uh, website, but I can't remember. We have a couple of featured articles on the website and I forget what all's on the featured articles. Okay. I, all right. I think it, it may be on the featured. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. But it's on the complexity. Or, okay. Thank you. And if anyone Thank has you. trouble finding it, you can feel free to email me. I'm just hstorkel at ku.edu. So. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much. Okay, so we have the shortcut. We have the shortcut. We have 20 minutes to talk a little bit more about the long cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't so, give us much time. <laughs> I know. So what, what do you want to do? Should we talk more... We had I had thought maybe we would talk about the maximal opposition approach, which is another sound selection approach, but we could also talk more about what we actually do in treatment. Um, so what yeah. we do in treatment. I like the yeah. In treatment. Yeah. That's lay, what I was lay thinking. Some of that on us. So yeah. Um, in the complexity approach, uh, a couple things that people always ask about. You know, one, how many sounds um, to select? Um, typically in the complexity approach, you only select one or two. You do not select more than that. And part of the reason of that is that because you are teaching a, a complex sound, an advanced sound, a sound that the child has 0% accuracy on, you don't want to split your time across a bunch of different sounds. You know, we know uh, if you're seeing a kid in the schools, you're probably seeing them twice a week for 20 minutes and they're probably in a group. So the child, you know, really needs a lot of um, trials and intensity and teaching episodes for the sound that you picked. So you really don't want to be doing, you, you should be careful even about picking two sounds, picking one sound, especially like if you're going to do one of those clusters, you should probably just pick one and really focus on that because there's going to be a lot of coaching that needs to happen. As many trials as you can get is going to be important. So you really, you really need to pick just one sound. And sometimes that makes people nervous, but remember the whole point of the complexity approach is to get that system-wide change by picking that very advanced sound that is going to push the child ahead. And what's been shown in the uh, research that has taught the, the clusters I mentioned, kids will tend to learn all the clusters. <laughs> so, you know, you might teach FL, and the child doesn't just learn FL or L clusters, you'll actually see change in other clusters, in the S clusters, in cool. the nasal clusters, in R clusters even, even though you didn't teach R. Yeah, And then cool. you also see a lot of change in the singletons as well. So it, it really works <laughs> based on the research that when you teach just one sound, the child really does have the system-wide change. So try not to be too nervous about picking just one sound the child will learn more. You're, you're picking a sound that is going to impact the whole system, but you need that, that focus. Okay. Okay. The other thing to think about in treatment is that typically the complexity approach starts at the word level. 
So you don't usually do syllables or things like that to begin with. You usually go ahead and go in at the word level. And for most kids, that that will work well. If if it's not working well, you, you can always drop back and go to a syllable level if you're really not getting success. Um, but most kids will have success at the word level. So that's usually where it starts. It usually starts in um, imitation. So you're giving models. Um, it does, as we were just talking about previously, you do use articulatory instructions. Um, you do have some of the auditory practice and you can uh, pull in other sorts of um, motor aspects, as we were talking about before. So again, it's kind of everything in the kitchen sink <laughs> to get the child to make an accurate production of your target sound. Okay. Okay. So hold that thought. Mm -hmm. There is a question here. Christy has a very good question. Would you still write goals for the earlier sounds, but target later uh, for, school IE for school IEPs, but target the later sounds? For, for uh, school IEPs? Yeah, so um, it, it probably depends a little bit on your goal writing philosophy. What I kind of prefer to do is to have sort of a goal that's evergreen. <laughs> I probably don't write goals the way that you were taught to write goals. I don't know. But what I usually like to write is a goal that uh, covers all of the sounds that the child has difficulty with. So here we might say the goal might be something like, um, you know, so-and-so will increase accuracy on, and then you would list um, all the sounds that are 0% accuracy or, you know, some subset, but let's say let's say we were talking about this cluster we were going to target FL, let's say. Um, if we're targeting FL, as I mentioned, we're going to expect change in all of the two element clusters and in all of the singletons that the child has difficulty with. We probably wouldn't expect change in the, the three element clusters like SKW, SKR. So those we would not include in our list of everything that should improve. But all those other things that the child is 0% accuracy for, we would maybe put in that list. And then you'd add on the rest, you know, uh, in, a, in a, a spontaneous word probe, you know, all the rest of the stuff that you normally have in a goal, um, along with whatever your starting uh, baseline is, which in this case, we're saying all the sounds that were 0% accuracy. So I'm just thinking here to sort of cover ourselves, <laughs> Could you put some of those earlier developing ones that the child doesn't have? And then what you are doing in therapy is really your methodology? That's right. So, so even though we're targeting FL, but if the child doesn't have K and G, we would expect that maybe K and G are going to improve when we target FL. So that long wow. list of sounds will be, Woo. you know, FL, SW, you know, all, all the two element clusters and then whatever fricatives, whatever stops, the liquids, you know, any of those sounds that are out of the child system. So you'd you'd sort of start at the level that you're targeting, the two element clusters, and include all of the things kind of below that. Again, if we're thinking in this complexity way that like those singletons are below the two element clusters. Right. So all of that would be in the list of things that you're quote unquote working on, even though you're not directly working on the K and G or the F, you're working on the FL, but your plan is that all of those things will change. Right. And so then you're right, the FL is just a means to that end. And now the reason why I like that is now you're going to work on FL, you're going to see what happens. And although I've said they should <laughs> improve in all these other areas, uh, they might not improve every single thing. So let's say that K and G don't come along the way. You, you do the FL and you get tons of change in clusters and you get lots of fricatives and that all looks good. But boy, that K and G are still there and they're still frowning at you. <laughs> and so now that you've done that and that K and G didn't move, your next method could be to work on the K and the G. So if you, you know, if you keep kind of a broad range of sounds in your goal, it just sort of keeps your options open to what you're going to work on. It also leaves open that maybe you start working on that FL and ooh, it doesn't go so well. You know, even though you thought it was going to be pretty good, boy, the kid's really struggling. We're not really making a lot of progress. 
Well, now we could pick a different sound that's still going to target that group of sounds and, and see if that goes better. So it just gives us a little flexibility to not have to change the IEP if we have kind of a broad range of sounds that we could target in a variety of ways. Okay. Okay. Well, and Christina did reply, and it's Christina, not Christy. Sorry about that, Christina. And she said, I have an initial IEP for a student tomorrow morning that fits this profile so well, and now I'm thinking about doing a later sound approach for him, but wrote goals for the earlier sounds, but I like your explanation of using the complexity approach as a methodology. So that's that's kind of what you're saying there. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, and, and she's got it just right, right? Yeah, Gosh, now I gotta got it. it. Oh, we never want to change the IEP goal. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> we kind of do, but you know. So, well, so try, well, to, try is, to write abroad. You know, the thing is, if the kid moves, okay, and the IEP obviously goes with the child, and, you know, and the kid has a KNG issue, and yet we're working on FL, people are going to go, huh? Because not everybody does know about the complexity approach. But in the IEP, we could say that we are utilizing this complexity approach and that we're going to be, you know, utilizing these clusters in an attempt to get blah, blah, blah. So, so that it, it, I think you would be covered then. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other uh, resource I'll point out is the slpath.com website. This, okay. this website is um, run by a school, SLP, uh, Jen Richards, and she uses the complexity approach and she has lots of great material. She's got some stuff about IEP goals. She's got some other examples of IEP goals. And she's also got some um, handouts for parents that kind of explain the approach. So I, I would look at her materials because she's got some nice parent-friendly and also team friendly because again you know your teacher on the team might be like what is wrong with you teaching FL yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. never seen yeah. that before yeah, it's SL path <laughs> yes so mm -hmm. speech language path mm -hmm. SL path and what is dot it just com. dot com just dot oh, okay com. Mm -hmm. okay all right thank you yeah so there's a lot of wonderful resources there there's also some great resources for therapy and all kinds of other um, information there that you'll you'll just find a wealth of materials but there's some nice things that are aimed more at non-slps um, to help okay. kind of explain this approach because it is it is a little bit different yeah yeah but that's okay i mean again we'll stand on our head that's different too <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? exactly whatever works thank you very much okay all right great excellent where do we go from here? Well, let's see. I think we left off with the kid in imitation of words. Yes, that was <laughs> We it. should probably move him along. <laughs> yes, good good remembering. Thank you. <laughs> let's not leave him hanging. Yep. So after you do your imitation of words to a criteria, usually, you know, something like 75% correct across two sessions, then you move into spontaneous production of the sound in words. Um, and again, usually up to a criterion, something like maybe 90% correct across two or three sessions. And then at that point, in the complexity approach, you want to see what's going on. So this is now where you would want to look at the production of your target sound in words that you haven't been working on in treatment. So see if mm -hmm. we've got that generalization of, um, let's say, our target FL to other words that we hadn't practiced. We also want to um, look at conversation. Uh, even though we've been working at the word level, we want to see has the child started to generalize to conversation and, of course, outside the therapy room and all these kinds of things. So based on what we see, then we would decide, you know, where we want to go next in treatment. If the child isn't generalizing the sound to other words that you haven't worked on, um, the strategy there would be to stay at the word level, um, but to add more words or to start rotating words so that there's a lot more diversity in the words that are being practiced. And then if the child uh, hasn't generalized to uh, conversation or, you know, longer stretches of speech, something longer than just a single word, then you would want to start, you know, moving into those phrases and sentence level um, kind of practice. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. typically what the data show is that um, kids tend to generalize, most kids tend to generalize um, to words that you haven't worked on. 
and they tend to generalize to conversation as well. So this is, this is, again, where we don't want to write our goals to say that, you know, we're going to practice at the word level, and then we're going to practice at the phrase level, and then the whatever and the whatever, um, because sometimes kids don't need that. And so instead of kind of baking it into our plan, we want to try to keep that IEP a little bit open so we can kind of see what happens and be able to decide, okay, we don't have to practice at the conversation level, or we do need to practice at that level. If generalization of your target sound is looking really good, so you're like, okay, great, FL mastered, we are good. <laughs> then the next thing to do would be to look at the whole sound system and now assess whether that system-wide generalization has happened. So this is now where we'd be going back to that IEP goal and saying, okay, what's going on um, with K and G? What's going on with F as a singleton, L as a singleton? What's happening? So we'd be assessing all those other sounds to kind of see what our next target might be. And we could stick in the complexity approach and pick another complex sound. Or, you know, again, maybe all we've got left is K and G. So we're going to go ahead and work on K and G. So you would, again, kind of go back to that that planning stage of saying, do we want to stick in the complexity approach? Do we need to now pick up something different? Maybe now is the time to work on some distortions if we had ignored those initially or, you know, whatever is going on with the child system. Okay, good. You know, I am just wondering... I, just thinking back with a lot of the kids I've worked with, am I going to get kids that, you know, if I've got that FL, full, 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 am I going to get some kid and I'm going, okay, honey, let's do these L words, and the kid's going to go full of. Do they ever do that? Or can they then separate it pretty easily? I'm hoping that you say the second one. Yeah. <laughs> I would say just for most on the kids. Kid. I, I, it probably does depend on the kid. That's probably actually always the right answer, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say in general, yes, that they can, um, that they can separate. Um, that would be wonderful. Okay. Okay. Because I'm going to get, I mean, I'm, I can, I'm thinking of kids that may perseverate on that, you know, and they look at that as one big sound, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Okay. But, but certainly I imagine in your therapy, in your weeks, months leading up to that, you're going to say, oh, look, we have these two going together. Yeah, and I was going to say, so that's, that exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking, that some of the things that you do often to teach clusters, you know, does reinforce that it's two sounds because you often are saying things like, you know, you've got to bite your lip and then you put your tongue up because they've got to get that dynamic motion going. So even just showing like it's two movements can help them. Say, oh, it's two sounds. And then sometimes you would do like blocks or something um, yeah. to show like we're going to do the f oh. and then we're going to do the ul. And, um, and sometimes, you know, if you're getting that little schwa in between the two, you know, you start saying we got to make them close. Yeah. And you move your oh. little blocks together <laughs> yep. or use that use that to give them feedback of like, oh, no, those sounds are too far apart. We got to get them close. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that visualization of showing the child that, you know, it's two movements, it's two sounds, they've got to be close, whatever. So um, they can start to get that. And and sometimes you might even do a little practice of each sound um, in isolation to, again, kind of build up their ability to follow the instructions, and then you're putting them together. So generally, the way you would teach a cluster does kind of help kids know that there are two sounds in good. it. Good. I can breathe easier. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you for that. Now, and we can find more out as far as the specifics and the sequence and some of these little the the little strategies that we can apply. Is that in your complexity article? Yes, the complexity article has uh, quite a bit of information about um, picking sounds and teaching sounds. And then there's a, another tutorial that I uh, just put out on the maximal oppositions approach that's in language, speech, and hearing services in the schools. Um, and that talks about how to pair sounds, but it also has some more information, too, about um, teaching sounds. So, you know, the, the teaching sounds part in either of those articles, you know, that they can go together, they can work together in that way. Okay. So okay. um, those would be two articles to look at for kind of Very some good. more details. Very good. Now the complexity article, do you remember what year it is? To kind of, Not so off the top of down. my head. <laughs> Within probably... the last three years or so? It's pretty recent. Let's see. I can Google it fast because I must be the the person who Googles this all the time. I, I Google <laughs> historical complexity LHSSS and it comes oh, okay. up. Okay. 
So let's see if I can find that quickly. Okay, because I've got the, the developmental norms one is 2019. So I'm thinking maybe I wanted you to did. say it was 2018, but I'm, I'm not absolutely positive. It was before that article for sure. Oh, yep, it's 2018. 2018. Okay, good. Let's see. That helps us. We'll go to asha.org. Yeah, July 2018. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Put it in the search. <laughs> okay. I love it. Okay. Oh, man, I could talk with you for another hour. <laughs> that was, Me too. Was so much fun. <laughs> this is totally fun. Wow. Thank you so much, Holly, for your amazing information. And, you know, I'm just, I'm thrilled to hear that, you know, that you are, you know, coming up with some unique ways to help kids and that it's working and that you are willing to insert other things in there and, you know, give them whatever they need to do. So, you know, or need to be successful. So I'm just, I'm thrilled that you are open to doing that. But uh, yeah, here we have um, we have people thanking you for great content and super helpful, excellent. Oh, there is oh look at that! I tell you, Yumi is on the ball. <laughs> she has the the course moderator put the link in there for you all. So link to the journal article. I love it. Well, I just want to thank you, Holly, for a very interesting session. Very helpful. Very helpful. And I do want to thank all of you for being here and and for tuning in and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast, where you not only learn practical information like, like today, you earn CEUs. And do know that in a few days, you'll be able to access this course and get your CEUs through, uh, you know, speechtherapypd.com, you know, if if somebody is listening to it after it has been recorded and out there <laughs> on Apple Podcasts, I just want to let people know that they can get their CEUs. Of course, all of you can tonight, but also the, uh, you know, our episode here will be, our audio episode will be on all the popular apps like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean, etc. if you want to listen to it again. So also, I really appreciate your positive, supportive comments on there and your reviews. Uh, if you are looking forward to future speech links, Dr. Jacqueline Towson, PhD, CCC. SLP will share her knowledge and practical strategies on how to effectively use interactive narratives with young language disorder children. And that date is Thursday, June 16, 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. So mark that down on your calendar, if you will. And as we wrap up, just log into your speechtherapypd.com account, take the quiz, do the evaluation, and print out your certificate. You did it again. But most of all, I do hope you know just how much you are appreciated. Thank you so much for all you do for your therapy kids. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit charboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.